It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I am thrilled that you are tuning in today because we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, we read through verses 14 to 16 last week and talking about the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me just recap what we covered there towards the end of last week's broadcast for those of you who didn't get a chance to listen to that. So that way we just continue in this theme. It's a, it's a critical theme. So let's pick up at verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are a temple, the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So he says here, do you not know? Now this phrase appears 10 times in 1 Corinthians and serves as a common literary device to pose a rhetorical question. It's something his listeners should know, but they don't. And it's something that ought to have been a matter of common knowledge. They'd either forgotten it or just flat out rejected it. So this phrase is equivalent to something we might say today of come now with an exclamation point. So in this context, Paul is talking about both the church, which is the unified body of believers, and we'll get to that as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he's talking about the individual Christian. So he's addressing both simultaneously. How do we know that? Well, the, the context here in chapter 3 has been about the church body, the body of Christ. But, but Paul's going to address our body, our individual bodies as being temples in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. So not only does the context support the view that Paul is speaking of the local church, it's also in addition to the individual. It's because of the way the grammar is here. You see the word you in this verse is also plural in the Greek. So, so Paul states that the local church is a temple of God. If Jesus Christ is positioned where he's supposed to be, and that's usually the issue is we can spot false doctrine by how Jesus Christ is treated. If it doesn't align biblically, if it doesn't stand the test of the biblical description of who Jesus Christ is, then we know it's false doctrine immediately by how Jesus Christ is, is treated in that scenario. So there's two primary words for temple in the Greek New Testament, the hieron and the naos. And the hieron, this signified this the entire temple structure, if you will, and that would include the outer courtyard, which even the Gentiles could enter. But the other word naos denotes this the sanctuary area, the, the holy of holies, which could not be entered by Gentiles or even sinful Israelites or anyone for that matter, except for the high priest. And only once a year could he go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur. Now, that just happened this past week. So on Wednesday, it started Tuesday night into Wednesday, was the Day of Atonement known as the holiest day of the year. And it always pointed to Jesus Christ. But let me get back to where we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This word temple naos used here is, is the very one that, that I want to call your attention to. It's used here in verses 16 to 17. It's a naos, not the hieron, the naos where God dwells. So the group of believers was a sanctuary of God, i.e. a holy of holies. We are a temple of God. God himself has called us holy and significant. So the Holy Spirit dwells in the church and 
dwells in you. Let's, let's read what Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, to gain a little more personal application to this. Here's what he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So think about it. If you're a temple and I'm a temple and we're all parts of the temple where God himself dwells, then when we all come together under one roof, that means there's a lot of the Holy Spirit in one place. So we should absolutely expect God to be in our midst in an awesome way. You see, the indwelling spirit symbolized what we had with the Ark of the Covenant. If one Ark of the Covenant could bring down idols and evoke fear into the hearts of the enemies of God, uh, just go to Joshua chapter 3, 6, and 10 on that, or 1 Samuel 5 to 6, then imagine a whole room filled with Arks of the Covenant. Well, let's stop imagining. All you have to do is show up on a Sunday morning. That's what the church is. A room filled with arcs of the covenant. And tragically, many Christians dismiss the importance of the local church when it's an assembly of the greatest power on the face of the earth, the presence of God in his followers. So I implore you, commit to attend church every Sunday. I mean, unless you absolutely can't attend, if, if you're sick, then, then I understand. Stay home, maybe watch it online. But when we forsake the assembling of the brethren... And what we'll find as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is what we're saying is that even though I may be the hand within the body, on the body itself, and Christ is the head, we're saying that I'm going to skip out being a part of the body today. So that'd be like your hand just simply taking a hike and walking off of your body one day, and you're saying, hey, hand, get back over here. You belong to the body. See, when we're together, it's iron sharpening iron. You have to put into practice all of the things that you're learning. It's not just to sit and keep keep a pew warm or sit and soak, but rather to apply all of the biblical truth into the world around us. And it starts right in the body of Christ, ministering to those in need right there in the body of Christ, e- even you know, engaging with people that you may not like all that much. Maybe, maybe you do a little less agape loving to somebody else in the body that God is working on you to love them more, just like with Moses and the people of Israel. God was working on Moses as much as he was working in Israel. And so you see how Moses becomes ready to lead when he's ready to lay down his own life for these individuals who are in the act of sin. God was transforming his heart to think like his heart. And so God may be working on you in the same way. So let's not forsake the assembly of the brethren. So how serious is God about his church? Let's go on here now, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So who are these temple destroyers? Well, many scholars believe that this, these temple destroyers are, must be unbelievers. Well, the problem with that view is that only Christians are mentioned within this context. And there's no indication that Paul has transitioned to speaking to unbelievers. So Paul was just addressing the carnal behaviors of individuals within the church, individuals he called brethren. So a believer can be highly productive in service to the Lord in their workplace, at home, or even in charitable offerings, and then give in to the temptation to gossip about others in the church. And now I'm just calling out that as one ingredient in division that occurs in a church, but that's a destructive behavior 
that damages the temple of God. And this ought to disturb all of us. So Paul is saying that it's possible for Christians to destroy their own local churches. That means that the greatest threat to our churches can come from within, not from without. And we're going to address this to greater detail when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and couple that discussion with Romans 6 to 8. So how does one go about destroying a local church? Well, there are countless ways and far too many to expound on, but let me just give you a few here. Number one, a church can be destroyed by divisions. And we pick that up from verses 10 to 17 and chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. You see, in Corinth, most of the divisions stemmed from preaching cults. Everyone had his or her favorite preacher, and they weren't bashful in saying so. I mean, this resulted in divisions in the body of Christ. These verbal wars undoubtedly led to other sins, like gossip and slander. And we can't continue to tolerate these verbal sins. I mean, even though they may seem relatively innocent— they're capable of destroying a church. I mean, after all, divide and conquer seems to be the strategy of Satan. And I probably get an amen from those of you listening right now. Now, Alan Redpath, he passed away in 1989. He was a well-known British pastor and author, and he once formed a mutual encouragement fellowship when he was going through specifically uh, certain times of stress while he was pastoring. He asked people to subscribe to a simple formula And he applied this throughout his life, and he was asking others to do the same. And it was an acrostic that was, the the acrostic is think, T-H-I-N-K. And here's what he says. T, he asks, this stands for, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? And K, is it kind? Again, the acrostic is think, T-H-I-N-K. I-N-K. T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? And K, is it kind? If what I'm about to say does not pass those tests, I I need to keep my mouth shut. And it worked. In fact, many who who follow this acrostic and honor Christ with their tongues, they, they simply became a blessing and an encourager around this pastor who was going through great stressful times. And and it also applied and worked within the church as well, and the church began to thrive. And this particular concept is addressed in Ephesians chapter 4, 29, James 3, 1 to 12, Ephesians 5, 4, amongst many others. So remember, we will give an account for every word we speak before Jesus Christ, according to Matthew 12, verse 36. So number two, a church can be destroyed by bad theology and methodology. And we get that from verses 18 to 25 here of chapter 1 and here in chapter 3, 18 to 23. So if someone individually chooses to begin to live according to the wisdom and practice of the world, well, they begin to corrupt and damage the church. They're building the church with shoddy material, which will not stand the test of fire, and therefore they're marring the building of the church. So when someone seeks to make the church impressive, and powerful by the methods and standards of the world, what are they doing? They're corrupting and damaging the church. If someone seems to become consumed with some particular skewed doctrine and emphasizes this theology above all others, well, then destruction is imminent. And down throughout time, churches have split over both theology and methodology. So having right theology and methodology is important But we must not divide over non-essential issues. So one way is to preach false doctrine. 
Another way is to lull people to sleep spiritually by telling them just what they want to hear. So pastors can also destroy churches by riding hobby horses. They can get into the spiritual gifts, spiritual warfare, Calvinism versus Arminianism debates, even in times. And pretty soon we become known as experts in certain topics rather than teaching God's Word. And look, as much as I enjoyed going 16 months through the book of Revelation, which we covered all 18 prophetic books, we still have 66 books that have to be covered. And there's over a 1,000 chapters, 31,000 verses, over 783,000 words. But who's counting? I mean, really. But, but we have to look at the full Word of God and instruct God's people accordingly. It told us to do this in Ephesians chapter 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, listen, a third way. A third way a church can be destroyed is by indifference and non-involvement. And we get that here from chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. So Paul noted that some of the builders were building with worthless building material. So consequently, the building was rickety even though the foundation was flawless. That's a dangerous trend with churches today. So many churches have died on the vine because no one was willing to carry on the ministry. So it's imperative that every member serve in at least one capacity. I mean, pray for the church. If that's all you can do, prayer is huge. It's the boiler room of ministry. So I have to ask you, are are you serving in your church? And what would your church be like if every member was just like you? you got to think about that. That could be one side or the other. If if you're not really doing anything in the church, then imagine if everybody else wasn't doing anything. If if you are doing something in the church, just imagine if everybody was doing it. It would be incredible if they were. So those are the dividing, these are the things that are dividing churches and destroying them. And, and it's because the church of Jesus Christ is a living organism. It's not just an organization. So you can divide a pie into six pieces without destroying it you're just preparing to serve it. And that's because a pie is an organization. But but if you divide a dog into two pieces, you've destroyed him because it's an organism. So there's your difference between an organization and an organism. The Corinthian church was being divided into four cliques or parties, according to 1 Corinthians 1.12. So it was in danger of being destroyed. The church is living and breathing just like the Word of God. It's active. So here God says that he will destroy those who destroy his temple. Notice that the punishment seems to fit the crime. So you destroy and you will be destroyed. Does this mean eradication or extermination or eternal punishment in hell? Well, I mean, a quick look at the word translated destroy in a lexicon informs us that it means to desecrate, harm, corrupt, or spoil, not to exterminate. So it's never used by Paul to refer to eternal destruction or damnation in hell. It can, however, refer to judgment upon an individual for being disobedient. So why is God so protective over his church? Well, number one, the church is the place where his name is revealed. So so we must be reminded that when the world considers God, it typically looks at God's temple. The church, i.e. his people, we're the representatives for Jesus Christ. We're his ambassadors. So when people want to ridicule God, what they look is they see our shortcomings, our failures. We fail to put on our robe, our identity, our signet ring, wearing clean clothes that are unsoiled by the world, but rather dressing appropriately, acting appropriately, using words that are becoming only of Almighty God, not those of the world. And go back to Ephesians 4.29 on that. We need to be set apart. We're to be salt and light. 
So we're often the ones that the world looks at to examine or ridicule, mock, or even reverence God Almighty. Yes, it's a big responsibility. So when the world sees a destructive temple, it then draws its own erroneous conclusions about the character of God. So why did they do this? Because they're, they're looking to those who claim to follow God. So in the process, it can seem that God's reputation is damaged. While Satan can never destroy God's character, he can certainly try to damage his reputation. And he does it through the people of God who are careless with their roles and responsibilities. And number two, the temple of God is holy. So the irrefutable reason why God's judgment falls on those who try to destroy his church is because for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are, according to verse 17. So it's hard to refute God's reasoning here. If God's temple is holy, and if we are that temple, then it only stands to reason that God, who cannot tolerate sin, must judge and punish those who sin against his church, i.e. even his own children, his own people, those who fail to protect the church. So the kicker here is that his temples can sin against God by desecrating ourselves, which is ultimately destroying his temple. This is why we have to remain pure and undefiled, unscathed by the world. I mean, even in Jude, he tells us to, you know, to to hate even the the clothing soiled by flesh, right? To, To flee from these things, that we're not to use our freedom in Christ Jesus as a license for sin. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, we read, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. So the Holy of Holies was so sacred that anyone caught desecrating it or even touching forbidden objects, was some, some, they were judged. They were, without delay, judged. And so the church, which is the congregation of his people that includes your vessel, i.e. your body, is also holy to the Lord. So if God judged the desecration of his temple in the Old Testament, do you think he will overlook the desecration of his temple in the New Testament? Therefore, we must be holy in both our conduct and our calling. So either we're destroying the church or we're building the church. There's no middle ground here. We're either going to step up and honor God with our vessels, step out in obedience, be salt and light in this world, or we're not. So either we have to make a decision. It's really, it's before you even right now, as you listen to my words, you have to make a decision today. Are you going to be in obedience or not? Because believe me, the enticement of the world is great. We see in Matthew chapter 24, especially as the days draw near to the coming of Jesus Christ, that the illusion, the the false doctrine in this world will become so enticing that it may even deceive the elect. It's not possible, but he says it could even deceive them because of the enticement of the message. And Satan is very wily. 
He knows how to draw us away. And we are told that God will strengthen us to enable us to flee from Satan. If we resist him, he will flee. He will give us a way out that that we don't have to succumb to his temptations anymore. And so it's time that we, the body of Christ, rise up, make a decision to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. Are we taking up our cross to follow him or are we simply giving him lip service. I I know this is convicting, but it's time that we really address the issue here. We have become so deluded as the people of God, compromising in everything, we don't even know what to stand up for anymore. If you go back to Jude and read Jude, and you'll see that there is a plea in those 25 verses to contend for the faith, that we are to stand apart, set apart by God, to be his body, to be his continuation of his great work on this earth. As Jesus Christ has instructed us, he even told us that we do greater things than him. Why? Because we're the continuation of the incarnation. We are to continue the work that Jesus Christ has set for us to do. And this is not for the faint of heart. We know that persecution will follow. He guarantees that. If we are trying to be set apart, if we're trying to walk in righteousness, we will experience persecution. And that's when we put up our walls and say, I'm not ready for that. I just want to have a a happy marriage, pay my bills, show up to church on a Sunday every now and then, really pay my dues, and ultimately just receive all of God's blessing and never really be stretched or tried, even tempted of whether we are putting this, this faith to the test or not. Are we really individuals of faith? Are we really set apart? Matthew 7 instructs us, even gives us a warning, saying that there will be many who look the part, many who say the same words. They may use the same vocabulary, but it's a different dictionary. And so we have to be convicted by that to say, do I really have a firm foundation of faith? Do I really know this Jesus Christ, whom I claim to worship and follow, Am I truly being set apart? Could the world cross-examine me and look at the evidence of my labors, the fruit of my works on this earth? Is it for my kingdom or is it for God's? Are we really in labor for him or for ourselves? Because here, everything, as we just talked about last week, it's going to be burned up if it's not the materials that last forever. If it's not the materials that build up God's temple, that build his kingdom, it will not stand. In fact, we're told that as Jesus Christ comes, as he descends at the Mount of Olives, and as the end of days fast fast approaching as it is, that there will be no mountains left, there will be no islands left, the valleys will be brought up, the mountains will be brought low. This world is going to go through some cataclysmic changes in preparation for the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, and far too often we are consumed with the paint on our house. There are lives that need to be saved. We need some intentionality. We need some passion. We need some energy. Are we truly standing out for Jesus Christ? And yes, that will come with persecution. When you are bold for Jesus Christ in a gracious way, I'm not saying being a belligerent way or or being rude or or, or even uh, uh, like a bull in a china shop. Rather, we just have to have the, the mercy uh, that we receive from Jesus Christ every day that, that permeates our lips but filtered with the wholeness of the truth, that everything that we say is grounded in truth, that we are God's people and he needs us to stand up and to stand into the gap 
that God is calling you for such a time as this. And if there was ever a time in America's history where especially in this nation, let alone all the other nations of the world, as we look at almost 200 countries around the world, it is time for God's people to stand up and be set apart and to worship Him in, in a spiritual plane, in a way that worships and glorifies God, where we are saying, I, I don't want my kingdom anymore. I want God's kingdom, and I'm willing to put myself out there and be used wholly by God. And whatever sphere is necessary, it starts right here in my home. It starts in my community, my workplace, wherever my sphere of influence touches, even on social media, wherever it is, be the body of Christ. Be the temple of God. Be convicted, my friends, and I pray God will stir you even out of your sleep. If you find yourself complacent and sitting on the sideline, it is time to get to work because we know neither the day nor the hour of the return of Jesus Christ our Lord, but we know that it is fast approaching as we are watching events unfold even in the Middle East right now as we see with Turkey coming into Syria, and we see uh, uh, perhaps even the move as we discussed in our book of, as we went through the book of Revelation, and we're looking to the rebuilding perhaps of the Ottoman Empire, as Recep Tayyip Erdogan's mission and vision is, that we see certain events starting to unfold that, that move forward towards the end of days. Again, we don't know how long it is. We don't know the day or the hour. That's not for us to know. Our job and mission is for Jesus Christ, when that trumpet blows, is to find us actively in service to Him. We can't wait till the final hour to get our affairs in order. We need to do it now. Be prepared. Get your candles ready. Be the salt and light in this world. There are lives at stake. Individuals who need to know Jesus Christ, and they need to see it through you as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I hope you've been encouraged. Be encouraged, my friends. God is calling you, and he's calling you out from the world to be set apart, to be salt and light, to be active, to be ambassadors for him, change agents in the culture. And I want you to be encouraged as we go through this study together. If you're looking for a fellowship to get involved with, please come check us out at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Again, Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. You can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Calvaryfountain.com services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., on Sundays, and we would love to see you there. God bless you, my friends.